you're aware of something known as the Protestant Reformation, obviously. It started essentially when uh, a monk named Martin Luther tacked 95 points of debate that he had with the Catholic Church to the door of the Wittenberg Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, that is always depicted as a very defiant kind of act. It was not really. The door of the church was the community bulletin board, and so he uh, wanted to start a, a discussion with the church and in the community about these points of debate that he had with the Catholic Church. And of course, it started a firestorm that swept around the world and created for the first time really um, in 1,500 years a divergent stream of Christianity. Before that, there had been a singular Catholic stream, essentially, of Christianity. After that period of time, there was the Catholic and the Protestant stream, and we are obviously downstream as Blue Valley Baptist Church of that, that Protestant divergence. And even the Catholics today will acknowledge that the medieval Roman Catholic Church was in need of reform. There were a great deal of uh, uh, things that were corrupting about the Catholic Church. Uh, they were fleecing the people monetarily uh, to build these grand uh, places of worship and a whole lot of other things. It was just very corrupt, and even Catholics will acknowledge the church needed to, to be reformed. And Martin Luther alludes to these things in his 95 points of debate with the Catholic Church. But the thing that really drove it for him was based on a, on a two-word note he wrote in his Bible. In Romans chapter 3, verse 28, out to the margin, he wrote the words in Latin, sola fide, which meant only faith or alone faith, faith alone. He had reached the conclusion that the New Testament taught that salvation comes to people not through things prescribed by the church that people need to perform in order to make themselves right with God, but the only thing that makes someone right with God is their faith in the finished work of Jesus and that alone. Now, this is uh, a truth that we kind of readily affirm. Uh, in a church like ours, we say, well, of course, we get that. We get that salvation doesn't come through anything I do. Uh, it comes through my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But we struggle, I think, in living out the implications of that. I think if, if we really examine, do kind of a, a, a forensic examination of our lives, we will find out that uh, most of us may affirm that we may pass the written test on salvation by faith alone, but really the practicalities of how we live out our faith in Jesus Christ demonstrate that uh, we kind of have a muddled understanding of really what it means to experience salvation. Now, Paul, if you'll remember, as we were going um, through the book of Romans prior to the Christmas break, is using the book of Romans to introduce himself to a group of Christians that he has never before seen or visited. And in this introduction of himself, he's having to dispel some mistruths, uh, rumors, some mischaracterizations of what he was all about that had arrived before his arrival in Rome. One of the chief mischaracterizations is that as far as Paul was concerned, personal morality or religious piety didn't matter a bit. You can live how you want to as long as you profess your faith in Jesus Christ. And what he begins to do when we get to Romans chapter 4 is to really address that critique head on. What is it that I mean really 
when I say salvation comes by faith alone? Does it mean that it doesn't matter how we live or how we practice religion, or does it mean something else? And so I hope you found Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, as Paul begins to address this mischaracterization head on, and he does it with these words. Verse 1, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather in the faith? Let's word that differently so that we understand the gist of what he's getting at. He's saying, how was Abraham saved in our language? How was Abraham made right with God? Abraham, who was our forefather in the faith, our ancestor, our forefather according to the flesh. Remember that there's a large group of Jews, uh, Christians who had come to faith from a Jewish background there, and he's addressing them uh, head on in in verse 1 of chapter 4. How is it that Abraham was made right with God. And then he says this in verse 2. If Abraham was justified by works, in other words, if Abraham was made right with God by the things that he did, then he has something to boast about. I mean, think about it. If, if Abraham was, was saved through the things that he was able to accomplish, he might be able to come to me and brag about it. You know, I was saved because I was really all that in a bag of chips. And he could come to you and maybe do the same thing. I I was saved because I was able to perform righteousness at a very, very high level. He could brag maybe amongst all of us. But then Paul says he could brag to us, but but not before God. Why? Because of Romans 1 through 3. Because Abraham was a creature, he was tainted by sin, and that meant that even his uh, best... Uh, morality and his best religious piety was tainted by sin. So while he might be able to distinguish himself among us, when it came to a holy God, it would not count for anything because even his very best was tainted by sin. So he's answered his question. How was Abraham saved? Verse 1. Verse 2. Not by what he did. It wouldn't matter to God. So how was he saved? Verse 3. For what does scripture say? How does Scripture say that he was saved, made right with God? He quotes from Genesis 15. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and he was made right with God. Abraham believed God, and he was saved. That's a direct quotation from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. It's such an important text to not just Romans, but the entire Bible, I think we need to go back and and look at it. So hold your place in Romans chapter 4 and go back to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, I'll start reading in verse 1. After these things, after the events prior to Genesis 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Remember at this time he had not yet been renamed by God. His name had been Abram. It became Abraham. Here he's still got his birth name, Abram. The Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Now, if you remember the narrative trajectory of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, you know that that God had spoken to Abram in the desert and said, I want you to relocate your entire family. Go to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. Now, Abraham and his wife Sarah were childless. And so the promise that he would make him a great nation was also the promise that he would give them a child who would uh, in turn have children who would in turn become this great nation, which is a significant promise. 
promise given because Abraham and Sarah, when this promise is given to them, are very old, very old, past the age of, of childbearing. And so God had made this promise at this point years before Genesis 15. And he's just reiterating it here. I've not forgotten that promise to you. I'm going to fulfill this promise to you. And Abraham essentially in verse 2 goes, Really? I mean, really? Are you going to fulfill that promise to me? Because the circumstances of my life lead me to conclude that you've got no intention whatsoever of fulfilling your promise. Look at verse 2. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And he goes on to say, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. If I were to die right now, a distant relative in a distant town would get everything I own. A great nation? Really, God? He goes on in verse 3. Behold, you've given me no offspring. All these years, no offspring. And a member of my household, this distant relative in a distant town, is going to be my heir. He's essentially saying, God... I've got no reason, as I look at the circumstances of my life, to believe that you remember the promise that started this era of my life all those years ago. All right, so what does God do? The word of the Lord comes to him and says, this man, Eliezer in Damascus, he won't be your heir. He says, look at this, he says, your very own son shall be your heir. I still intend to give you a son. You're a senior adult when I made that promise. You're a senior, senior adult now. And I'm telling you, I have every intention of fulfilling that promise. And Abraham's heard all this before, and he thinks, I don't know, really? So God does this. Look at verse 5. He brought him outside. said, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Have you ever been in a lightless place, very dark, and able to look up at the sky on a clear night and see how many stars are up there. I mean, we live in town. You know, you could convince us who live in town with all these lights around us, there are no stars up there. But if you get out in, in, the, in the country, you can go out and you can start to, wow, there are a lot of stars up there. I'll never forget when I was in college, I was traveling to Colorado overnight from my college in Oklahoma with some other college students, and we were going to do some work at a church in Denver, Colorado over the weekend. And we were out there on the plains of eastern Colorado. It was, gosh, I don't know, it was maybe 2 o'clock in the morning. The guy, a friend of mine from college, was driving our van named Hans, said, uh, uh, I'm going to pull off. I want you guys to see what I'm seeing. Now, why he was looking up at the skyway should have been driving is, you know, beside the point. But he said, I want you to see what I'm seeing. So we pull over. And we get out and we look, and, you know, not a, not a light around, that clear, you know, high plains air. It, the sky was filled with stars. So I want you to imagine in a world before electricity, in a world before pollution, in the clear desert air, how many stars Abraham might have been able to see. He says, I want you to look up. Can you count them? No. He says, then he says to him, so shall your offspring be. I'm going to keep my promise to you. I'm going to give you a son, and eventually you'll have more descendants than stars in the sky. So Abram's got a choice to make at this point, doesn't he? He has to decide, am I going to continue outside of my visible circumstances to believe what God is saying to me 
about who I am and what he has for me? Or am I going to finally tire of chasing a whispering God around the desert and count the last many years of my life a fool's errand? He has a choice to make, and he makes his choice. Verse 6, he believed the Lord. Okay, God, I'm going to continue to believe you. I'm going to continue to trust what you have said. And he counted it to him as righteousness. It made him right with God. So now let's go back to Romans chapter 4. He is trying to press home the point that believing what God said about the means of our salvation, that it is accomplished through the finished work of Jesus, is what is necessary to save us. Abraham sets a pattern of believing God and taking him at his word and being made right with God as a result. But he continues to press in on, on why it just makes sense that sinners would have to come to a point where they trusted only God to save them. Verse 4 of Romans 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. I don't think, I hope not. I hope you didn't when you gave Christmas gifts a little over a week ago. I hope you didn't say, I hope you enjoy that gift. Here is what you owe me for that. Nobody did that. They were just gifts that were given. So he's, he's kind of bringing that point out. Wages are not a gift due. You don't pay for a gift. And a wage is not something that is given to you. It's something that you earn. Verse 5, he says, And the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. What is he doing here in verses 4 and 5? It's something that is brilliant and should shake us to our core. He's saying, If you are saying to God... You must save me because I have been good enough to deserve it. You are saying that God owes it to you to save a good person. Now that sounds blasphemous to any of us. And, and it's essentially what he's saying. If you are living, if you are operating by the idea that God must save you, because you've been a good person, then you are putting God beholden to you. You are essentially making God serve you and telling him he owes it to you to give you eternity with him. That doesn't make any sense. So he's continued to push into that idea that we're saved. The only basis for our salvation that makes any sense is salvation by faith. But then he knows he's got people out there who's saying, okay, well, you found one verse where it says that, but I mean, is that really the teaching of the entire Bible? And I want you to see what he does in verse 6. He says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from work. He says, David, not just Abraham, but David brings this out when he wrote in the Psalms, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. So here's what he's done. In order to show that all of Scripture teaches... That salvation comes by faith in God alone. He alludes to all of the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures, this is important to know, are divided into three headings in the Jewish mind. The Torah, the law, and then the prophets, and then the writings. So, in fact, if you were to grab a, a copy of a Hebrew Old Testament, it would say that you were picking up the law, the prophets, and the writings. He has covered all sections in the first eight verses 
of Romans chapter 4. The law, Abraham appears in the, the law portion. David appears in the prophet portion. Uh, it's an interesting discussion why David would be included there, but it, it's, it sidetracks us, and so I'm not going to get into it, but, but David is including that portion of Scripture. And then the Psalms come from the writings. And so what he has done in these first eight verses is saying this is not an isolated teaching. It is all the way through the Old Testament that we call our Bible that God makes us right with him on the basis of our faith in him. And so then that answers the question for people from a Jewish background who are Christians, how they're made right with God. They're made right by faith. But then understand also there are a group of, of Christians that he is writing to who, who didn't come to faith in Christ from the Jewish religion. They were Gentiles. They didn't, before coming to Christ, treat the Old Testament as authoritative. So are they saved in the same way? Are they saved on the basis of faith in God alone? And he gets into that in verses 9 through 12. And I'm about to say, I just need to tell you, parents of, of young children in this room watching online, I'm about to give you a very difficult subject of conversation for the rest of your afternoon, but I can't get around it. Forgive me. Here we go. Verse 9. Is this blessing then, salvation by faith in Christ alone, is this blessing then only for the circumcised, the Jew, or is it also for the uncircumcised? In other words, can Gentiles be saved by faith in God alone? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as his righteousness. In other words, Faith alone is what saved Abraham, not his commitment to the covenants of the Jewish religion of which circumcision was a sign. How then was it counted to him? Was, when was salvation given to him? When was he made right with God? Was it uh, before or after he had been circumcised? Was it before or after the covenants of the Jewish religion came along? And he says it was not after but before he was circumcised. In other words, he's made right with God before there is even any covenant with God to be observed. It was strictly on the basis of his faith in God. It goes on to say, verse 11, he received the sign of the circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still circumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. He's saying, and he, he concludes with the, uh, the words to that effect in verse 12, that what makes us right with God, what makes us ultimately true descendants of Abraham is not observing the covenants and the morality of the Jewish faith. What makes us right with God is the faith of Abraham by putting our faith in God alone and what he says when he brings us to the understanding that salvation comes only through the finished life and work of Jesus Christ. So he's taught us in these 12 verses that faith is the only ingredient in the recipe for salvation. In other words, if we were to make it a mathematical equation, he's taught us that salvation equals faith, full stop. But earlier I said most of us don't really believe that. The reason is most of us operate by a different calculus for salvation. We may pass the written test 
that says salvation comes only through faith in the finished life and work of Jesus Christ. But how we live reveals a different calculus. It reveals this. Salvation equals faith plus something. Salvation equals faith plus church attendance. Salvation equals faith plus being kind. Salvation equals faith plus a clean sexual history. And this calculus is what does two very destructive things in churches like us. It is what forms the basis of a very destructive, legalistic approach to the faith. And it is what provides the basis of a debilitating doubt that tends to permeate churches like ours. Permeate us in the sense that people in quiet moments are wondering, have I really done enough to merit salvation before God? So while we can pass the test, salvation comes only through faith. Most of us live with a different calculus that manifests itself in us being hypercritical of other people's sins and quietly doubting whether we've done enough. So how can we change the calculus? These verses give us two things, and then I'll wrap it up. First of all, they help us understand that we must embrace the extent of our need. We must embrace the extent of our need. Now, we are almost naturally inclined when we hear words like that based on what we have just read to say, yep, I, I'm a sinner who sins, and because of my sin, I, I need salvation by faith in Christ alone. And we look at the examples that he's given. We look at Abraham, and, and we look at David, and we know that these men have histories. I mean, Abraham's a real winner, right? I mean, he's a man who not once but twice uh, gave his wife up for possible sexual exploitation because he was worried that powerful men would see her, desire her, and kill him to have her. He is a man who had his wife's encouragement, right? You remember this? Had sex with her slave girl in order to kind of help God along and keeping his promise to give him an heir. And when that child was born, big shock, his wife gets jealous and he allows his wife to abuse this slave girl to the point that she runs away. Yeah, he's a real winner, that guy, Abraham, right? He's a sinner. Of course he needs it, right? Of course he needs faith, grace that comes through faith to save him. And then David, nothing to see there. <laughs> well, of course... Of course, there's something to see there. He has an affair with another man's wife, impregnates her in the process, kills him to cover his tracks. Later on in his life, when he was long enough in his walk with God to have known better, he decides he wants to see how strong he is by counting, by numbering the men who were old enough to fight under his command. He's warned this would dishonor God if you would do it. It would say that you're showing that you trust in your army more than you trust to God. He says, I'm going to do it anyway. 70,000 of his own people have to die in a plague from the Lord because he couldn't quite figure out that he needed to only trust in God. He's He's a sinner. And so we see Abraham and David and we think, man, they're sinners. But you need to understand, Paul is not 
calling them to mind to help us remember their histories. He's calling them to mind here to say these two foundational personalities of man's history with God, these two who would be on the Mount Rushmore of faith needed faith to save them. Their good stuff wasn't enough to save them. What Paul is trying to communicate to us is not that we are sinners who need all of God's grace to save us. He is trying to communicate to us that even saints need all of God's grace to save them. The extent of your need is not that I am a sinner who does bad things every now and then and God needs to cover that. The extent of your need is is on your very best day you need all of God's grace to save you. Embrace the extent of that need and then embrace the extent of your provision. Embrace the extent of your provision. I know because I've done this a long time that there are people in the pews who wrestle profoundly with things that they'd be embarrassed for anybody else to know about. And God begins to say to them, I'm sufficient for that. My grace through Christ is sufficient for that sin that you are burdened by or in hiding from. But what we tell us because we, ourselves, because we operate by a different spiritual calculus, is that that thing disqualifies me from ever experiencing salvation with God through Christ, or at least experiencing the fullness of it. And the extent of your provision is that it does not matter what you fight quietly, secretly. God's provision through Christ is sufficient to save you. It's sufficient to save you. So the only ingredient in the salvation recipe, the only mathematical formula that makes all of this work is salvation equals faith alone. That's it. So let me address two possible groups of people who are here today as we wrap things up. Let me first address the seeker. Those who are on a journey with God and they're not yet at a point where they're ready to commit to the Christian faith. Let me say to you what these verses force you to ask yourself. They force you to ask yourself, am I willing to admit that I am so debilitated by my sin that I have nothing to offer God for my salvation? That's the big scandal, frankly, of Christianity for most people, we think, I've got something to offer. I'm a good person. I don't need all of God like other people need God to save them. I've got something to offer. No. These verses tell us that you've got nothing to offer. And are you willing to admit that you are in such terrible spiritual shape that only God, by his mercy and grace, can save you as you put your faith in him? Let me say this also. Ask yourself another question. Are you willing to admit that whatever that sin is, whatever that struggle is, that you fight your way through all the time can be covered by the grace of Jesus. If you are, if you're willing to say, I am 
completely dependent on the grace of Jesus and his grace is sufficient to cover even the darkest, deepest of my sin, I want you to know that I'm here, Jeremy's here, we've got staff who are here, Zach and Kevin are here, we'd be happy to talk with you about what it means to give your life to Jesus and embrace the faith, uh, the grace through faith that he provides us in Jesus Christ. Now let me ask those who are followers of Jesus a couple of questions that will kind of reveal what calculus you live by in your life. Would people say of you, that person is compassionate towards people who are trapped by sin? Or would they instead characterize you as being morally superior to certain categories of sin but blind to your own? Would they, would they say of you, that person is very, very judgy about certain kinds of things? I would say to you that if you're characterized by, by that legalism and that judgmentalism, which can cut all across any ideological spectrum, that it reveals that you're not really living with the simplicity of salvation comes by faith alone. Because if you understand that and you understand the condition that you find yourself in, that you've got nothing in yourself to des deserve salvation, then you're going to be like Jesus was, a friend of sinners. It doesn't mean that you're not going to call sin out. It doesn't mean that you're not going to address sin when it shows up in your life or in the lives of other people, but you're certainly not going to be a judgmental jerk. Then let me ask you one other question. Do you live, would people say of you that you live a life that demonstrates you're at peace with your faith? Not smug and arrogant, but also not constantly second-guessing and gripped with doubt. If you're living by the truth that salvation comes to us through faith in Christ alone, you're never going to dismiss sin in your own life. You're always going to try to strive to please God with your life in response to what he has given to you. But you're not, you're not going to be debilitated by doubt when you see that there are areas of your lives that are not yet what God wants them to be. If you could say today, you know what, I'm afraid I'm a little <laughs> judgmental and legalistic about things. Or if you'd say, I'm not really at peace with my faith then again, we encourage you to reach out to me, reach out to Jeremy, reach out to Zach or Kevin. Email us if you're online. We'd be happy to talk with you about what it really means to live in the simple, settled truth that salvation equals sola fide, faith alone. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.